Well, let me, let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for the story of your uh, purposes from creation to the end, that we are not wandering aimlessly, but that we're part of a great story that you've written. Um, thank you that, that all that we know and all that we see is headed to the same thing, towards restoration in you. And so I ask that you would this morning help us uh, better know our place in this story um, as we better grasp the story that you are telling and enacting in all the world. We ask in your name. Amen. Um, it is warmer in here, which is nice. The, the 9 o'clock service told me that I wasn't allowed to preach long because it was cold, um, but we're inside now. So um, so as I was thinking about this this section today, you'll want a handout. Uh, they're on your tables. There's also some extra back there with the Bibles. Um, you also probably want a Bible, too. We're going to be in Genesis 15 for most of our time, but it's going to take a minute before we get there. As I was thinking about this morning, um, I was trying to think of an image that would help kind of make sense of the shift from session two, sin in the fall, to session three, covenant. And the image that came to mind um, was that of learning to sail. So Corey and I actually both, we, we met and kind of grew up together working at Camp St. Christopher out on Seabrook Island, and we would sail um, in Botany Bay, that stretch of water um, where the North Edisto River enters into the Atlantic. And it, that water is between, runs between um, Seabrook Island and Botany Island. And so we would, Corey and I would take our novice, our new staff members out in little sailboats, sunfish, to teach them to sail um, so that then they could sail campers. You had to pass a fairly rigorous test to do that um, because you didn't want to get swept downstream. The thing about when you're learning to sail, if you're new, um, it's, a, it's a pretty unpleasant experience because your hand is unsteady on the tiller. The tiller's that stick that controls the rudder that controls where the boat goes. Your hand is unsteady on the tiller, and you're always overcorrecting back and forth, losing direction every time you shift. And it's not uncommon when you're learning to sail to get a bad gust of wind that's so startling, either in the way that it moves the sail or pushes the boat, that you drop the tiller altogether and lose direction, at which point the wind and the waves dominate the boat and control where it goes without your involvement at all. The boat is tossed, it's not steady, it's out of control, and if you get seasick at all, you will on a sailboat with someone learning to sail. That's where it happens. A good sailor has a very different approach to sailing once you've gotten used to the boat. The hand is steady on the tiller, very slow in any change. The good sailor picks a point on the horizon. For us, we're sailing from Seabrook out to Botany. You'd pick the tallest pine tree you could see on Botany, and you aim for it. And that point on the horizon gives you something to steer towards. It fixes your direction. The good sailor is actually manipulating the water and the wind, the same two forces that threatened to destroy, to not destroy, but swamp and take out to sea the novice sailor. The good sailor is using those same two forces, the wind and the wave, manipulating them to set the trajectory of the ship. And as the boat gets underway, it levels out and it stabilizes. And what was kind of a sickening, concerning experience suddenly becomes exhilarating, joyful, peaceful and quiet. 
this struck me as a good image for the movement from last week's lesson to this one because sin is something like the humans dropping the tiller. It's humans given a task, given a responsibility to steward creation and abandoning that responsibility, that call, letting it go on the assumption that they could figure out things for themselves. But of course, when that responsibility, that call, that relationship with God is let go, when it is dropped, everything falls apart. And the creation that we are meant to steward becomes dominated by forces too powerful for us. The wind and the waves. Think of death and sin and destruction. And everybody's seasick. Everybody's stuck in trouble. This is where we left off last week was the fall. Adam and Eve rejecting God's will, choosing to determine right and wrong for themselves. And in their so doing, all of creation was fractured. Their relationship with God was fractured. Their relationship with one another was fractured. Even their vision, their relationship with creation, their relationship even with themselves is fractured. Shame and blame set in early. Genesis continues to reveal something like a spiritual law of entropy. In the way that Yeats um, would put it, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. There's this entering of sin into the world, and as it enters, everything begins to fracture like broken glass. And Genesis tells that story of the crack spreading from the initial point of impact out through the glass. Sin and rebellion spreads until the world is drowned in a great flood. But even then, even after only a few are rescued through Noah's ark, through the waters, even these humans continue in the image of their father, Adam. Even these humans, in the face of such great judgment, these humans continue in rebellion against God, continue fracturing and being fractured. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. I, when I was working in Statesboro, developed a relationship with a, a veteran who was a special forces uh, agent in Afghanistan. And we were reading Genesis together, and after we read Genesis 1, his, uh, he, he said, you know, this is stunning, this is beautiful, but it doesn't seem right. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because there's no brokenness. There's no, where is the brokenness? And later in conversation, um, as he told some of his stories from Afghanistan to me, he, he pulled me aside one day and said, Drew, what, what exactly does your God say about violence? What does he say? How does your religion deal with this? Because as a parent, even to him, even to an atheist just exploring Christianity, even to him, it is apparent that only God can do something about the violence in this world. Only God could do something to restore the brokenness of creation. God must act if creation is to be anything other than lost. And that brings us to the story of Abraham. So I'm going to read a section from Genesis 12, but if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Genesis 15, because that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Just a moment in 12, and then we're going to hop over to 15.
Genesis 12, I'm going to read 1 through 3, and then we'll be in 15, verse 7. So Genesis, starting in verse 12, begins to tell the story of Abram, a man God calls, and this is what he says as he calls this man Abram. The Lord said to Abram, this is Genesis 12, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So coming from the curse of sin and the fall, we have God calling one man named Abram and telling this man, to come out of his country, to follow him into the wilderness, because there in the wilderness he will make of this man a great nation, and of that nation he will make blessing for the world. Blessing for the world. As opposed to the curse that is now spread through all the world in the first chapters of Genesis, we have God declaring that there will be blessing through Abraham to the world. And that story continues in chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along. 15, verses 7 through 18, and I'm going to skip a bit in the middle for sake of time. Um, But I would encourage you to read this whole chapter later this week and kind of soak in the whole story. Abram is is married, but he has no children. He and his wife are barren. And so this sets up a great uh, challenge to the promise of God that he's going to call Abraham out, make him a nation, and make that nation a blessing to the world. How is he going to do it? Abram begins to doubt that God can. How can I know? How can I be sure that you're going to do this? If I am old and my wife is old and we're barren. And that's where the story picks up here in chapter 15, verse 7. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like I'm going to possess it. I don't have any kids. How could I possibly hold this land that's so vast and controlled by other peoples? And so verse 9, the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. It's a strange thing for God to do, isn't it? It's a strange answer to Abram saying, how are you going to do this? How can I know? And it gets stranger. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And we're going to skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. So Genesis 12, God promises Abram that he's going to make a great nation from him and from that nation bless the world. In Genesis 15, Abram asks for certainty. How can I know that I will do this? How can I know that I will possess it? It doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't seem like what the world looks like. It doesn't look like this is going to work. How can I know? And God says, well, you're going to need to get some animals. And you're going to kill them. 
And then you're going to split them open right down the center. So sliced straight down the middle. And you're going to lay them out kind of open-faced, each side over and against the other. Isn't that a bizarre, gory picture? It's very strange. What on earth is going on? Well, Abram doesn't push back. Do you notice that? Abram knows exactly what's going on. He knows what we don't. This gathering of animals, the dividing of them, and the laying of these animals out is preparing for an ancient covenant ceremony. When God says, bring me these animals, he's telling Abram to prepare to make a covenant with him. A covenant, that's a word we don't often use today. It's a formal promise, a treaty between two parties. These are highly ritualistic, highly symbolic. And this kind of covenant that Abram is preparing is a specific kind of covenant. And I've written it there on the top of your handout um, because it's it's a new word for us. Known to historians, this type of covenant, as a Hittite suzerain vassal treaty. That's as nerdy as we'll get today, guys. So let's look at those words one at a time just to make sense of them. Hittites, this is a tribe in the region of ancient Israel who often performed this kind of covenant ritual, made these kinds of treaties. Suzerain is a big word for a sovereign, for a king, for a ruler. Vassal is a word for the subjects of that ruler, the one ruled over. It's a state or a territory conquered, ruled over by that suzerain. Okay, so a suzerain vassal treaty is a treaty in which the suzerain, the ruler, the king, declares to this newly conquered territory, this submissive city, what their relationship is going to be like. A suzerain vassal treaty is like a geopolitical DTR. It's defining the relationship, making clear what this is about. And it should be obvious in a suzerain vassal treaty who determines the terms of that relationship, right? The king does. You know, imagine a king conquering a city, gathering what's left of the leadership together and asking them casually, so how do you want this relationship to work? Not exactly how it would happen, is it? No, it'd be ridiculous. The king determines the terms of the covenant, of the relationship, because they are the king. They've conquered this people. They control this city. And so the treaty defines the relationship according to the king's will. Now, there are promises made by both sides. I, the sovereign, will protect you from attack. I will allow you to trade with my other cities. And you, the subject city, will pay tribute annually, will give my soldiers quarter, will not rebel against me, that kind of thing. So there's promises both sides, and then there's a very specific ritual that completes the covenant ceremony. And the Hebrew language actually gives us a hint to this, about this ritual, as to what this ritual will be about. To make a covenant in Hebrew is literally to cut a covenant. It's to cut a covenant. That would be a literal translation of the Hebrew. To make a covenant is to cut a covenant. So this is what happens in a covenant ceremony. The two parties gather. They take a series of animals and they cut them. They divide them down the middle and they lay the halves out over and against each other. And when they do that, 
that creates a blood path down the center of the cut animals, kind of a red carpet. It's actually where the red carpet comes from, believe it or not. A red path between the cut animals. And so this blood path becomes central to the covenant and to the ceremony because after the two parties have made their vows, declared their promises out loud, then the two parties walk down the blood path together. They walk between the pieces of the slaughtered animals. And what they're communicating by this walk is incredibly graphic. They're saying, this is my promise to you, and if I don't keep it, let me be like them. So if I don't keep it, let me be cut. Let me be split. Let me be torn in half. If I fail to fulfill my responsibilities, let my blood be poured on the ground until the birds come for me. You see, the covenant is a promise unto death. Both parties walk. Both parties promise on pain of death to never break their word. So this Hittite suzerain vassal treaty, it's a blood covenant, and it's incredibly serious. The stakes are extraordinarily high. They're life and death. And so God says, prepare to cut a covenant with me, Abram. God is going to cut a covenant with Abram. Which on the one hand, you think, this is astonishing, right? It's astonishing that God would stoop so low to the level of human promises, would make himself responsible to humanity. It would be something like the pinky president's, uh, pinky, uh, something like the president pinky swearing with the second grader. You know, it's just like an astonishing act of humility and humbleness, glorious condescension. This is mercy, grace, that God would act at all to make a covenant with Abram. It's wonderful and it's beautiful, except, on the other hand, the fact that this requires Abram to make promises to God too. That is a terrifying prospect because if God is going to make a covenant, cut a covenant with Abram, that means Abram is going to have to cut a covenant with God with responsibilities that he must uphold or else. Or else Abram will be destroyed. If God fails, like that's going to happen, let him be torn in two. But if I fail, it seems more reasonable to think that might happen, especially in light of the rest of Genesis. So it's no surprise in verse 12, it says, A deep sleep, a terrible darkness, and great dread falls on Abram. No kidding. This would be terrifying. He's about to walk the blood path with God Almighty. Does he really think that he will be able to live up to that? To God's holy perfection, his almighty demands. Abram is understandably petrified. And then the most unexpected thing happens in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, 
a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Smoke and fire. These are both symbols of God, two symbols of his mystery and his purity, his power, his glory. Smoke and fire pass between the pieces. See, instead of God walking the blood path and then Abram walking the blood path, God walks it twice. In smoke and in fire. You see what that means? While Abram is petrified, he's sidelined with terror, God walks the blood path twice. In essence, God says, if I fail at my end of the covenant, like that's going to happen, let me be torn in two. But if you fail, Abram, I will bear the weight. If you fail, Abram, I will be torn in two. I will be torn in your place. You see, in the ship that's lost its way, God's hand falls now on the tiller. The ship begins to be steadied, begins to be righted. Because here, God promises to fulfill his purposes for us in creation, even when we fail. Even when we fail. You've probably heard the scriptures describe something like this. The Old Testament is God's first round of experiments. He tried with Adam, but it didn't work. So he tried with Noah, and it didn't work. So he tried with Abram, and it didn't work. So he tried with Moses and with David. And he keeps trying to set things straight, but people keep failing. His plan keeps falling apart. All these failed experiments, rough draft after rough draft, and now he finally steps in with Jesus and says, I'll just have to do it myself. This kind of picture, this kind of talking about the purposes of God, It completely ignores the fact that God knows all, sees all, understands all, that God is outside of time, that he knows the future as well as he knows the past, that he knows that we are dust and frail and broken. He knows that we will consistently fail. No, God's purposes do not fail because from the beginning, God recognizes what it will require to reconcile humanity to himself to restore all of creation to his original purposes. He knows that it will require his initiative, his rescuing, his fulfilling in light of our failures. He knows from the beginning. And this is how he will do it. He will enact his will. He will enact his plan for salvation from the beginning through covenants through promises made to God's people. The Abrahamic covenant, as we have just explored, is perhaps the most obvious, kind of the archetype of covenants. But the scriptures are filled with covenants from beginning to end. And on your sheet, you'll see that chart. I've collected some notes about the several kind of primary covenant structures that we find in the Old Testament. They don't all follow the suzerain-vassal treaty. That's one specific kind of covenant. But they all share similarities. 
in each of the scenarios in that chart, God has called his people out of somewhere into relationship with him. He's rescued them from their foes, which means that he is the Lord over them. In the same way that a king would conquer a city and that they would be subject to his terms, each of these begin, each of these covenants listed on the sheet begin with God rescuing or calling or saving which means that they are all in his debt. He is undeniably the one defining the terms of the covenant. Each one of them starts that way. In each case, there are promises made by God which he will fulfill. Which he will fulfill. In most cases, there are responsibilities that God's people are given as well. And in most cases, there's a sign of blood. A hint of the cost of failure. The cost of God fulfilling his purposes. The use of blood is fascinating in the covenants because like the sailor who uses the wind and the water, the two things that are pressing the boat off of course, how the sailor uses those two things seemingly opposed to him to create motion. God uses evil and death, manipulates them to his purposes. And blood in the covenant is a sign that he will actually use the brokenness, the death in the world, to do what must be done. He will manipulate it, twist it back to good somehow. So this leads Opie Robertson, who's an Old Testament scholar, to define covenant, as I have written on your sheets there, as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond, it's a covenant, a treaty, a defined relationship in blood. It's deadly in its seriousness. Sovereignly administered, it's put in place by the suzerain, by the sovereign, by the Lord. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And we find this bond of blood repeated throughout the Old Testament. It is the very backbone of the story of God. The concept of covenant, it gives us a framework on which to understand the rest of the scriptures. And we have to be careful that we don't import our old way of thinking into a new frame and say that, well, each of these covenants are successive experiments that fail. No, the covenants are not a record of God's trial and error. The covenants grow out of one another each one providing space for the next. God's covenant with Noah creates a world that he will not destroy in which he can call Abraham. His covenant with Abraham creates a people in which he can, to whom he can give the law in the covenant of Moses. The law that's given to Moses and to the people of Israel by God creates a kingdom in which God can give a covenant to King David. Each covenant doesn't fail. It builds. It creates space for the continuing of God's purposes. Space to continue to move towards that tall tree on the horizon. Remember that the, the sailing illustration. The good skipper has a steady hand on the tiller, clear eye toward that fixed point, the tall tree in the distance, keeping them straight. This means that all the stories, all the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, these are not records of God's failed attempts with humanity, interesting historical documents, and no more. No, these are records of God's promises being enacted 
each pressing forward God's purposes towards a singular point on the horizon. I'm going to say that again. Everything in Scripture, these are not records of God's fails attempts. They are records of God's promises being enacted, pressing his purpose forward towards a singular point on the horizon, that tall tree ahead. And at each covenant, there's a hint of that horizon, a hint of where it will go. And that hint is the last column in your charts there. What are these hints of the horizon that we get? Well, Adam has promised that his offspring, the offspring of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent, even though the offspring's heel will be crushed in the process. Noah has promised that God will not destroy the world again and given a sign. What is the sign for Noah? The rainbow, a bow, a weapon of war pointed into the heavens. As the Jesus Storybook Bible would put it, a bow pointed into the very heart of God. Abram has promised that all the world will be blessed by your descendants, someone from your family, some seed of your family will bless all nations. And in the covenant ceremony itself, we get the sign that God will be torn somehow. In the covenant with Moses, there is the sacrificial system instituted for Israel in which the sins of humanity are borne by another, an innocent lamb who dies. David, in God's covenant with David, is promised that a king from his line will be on the throne forever. You see these hints of the horizon. Do you know what point on the horizon they direct our eyes towards? And so it was that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Covenant. Covenant. This is how God works from the very beginning God sees humanity abandon his purposes, drop the tiller, dominated by powers too great for them, and so he places his hand on the tiller himself. He puts his eyes on the horizon. He does this through his covenants with God's people. And by them, all of history is pointed towards one tall tree, which we'll talk more about that next week. Okay, that's all I have for us this morning. Um, what time is it? Okay, almost time. Um, our homework assignment for this week. On the bottom of your sheet. The homework assignment is to ask someone you love what they are afraid of. What are they afraid of? Abram is afraid he can't have kids. He's afraid that God's promises won't come true. Ask someone you love what they are afraid of. And then ask a follow-up question. What would it change about your life? What would it change if you knew that God would promise to restore it in the end? Maybe not in this moment, but if it would all be made right in the end, what would it change? That's assignment. Okay, um, any questions? Anything, any questions, thoughts, responses? Okay, yeah, let's pray, and then we'll dismiss.
Father, we thank you for your sovereign promises given to your people. We thank you that you do not leave us in chaos, but that from the beginning you set a trajectory towards healing and wholeness. I pray that you would allow the peace of that truth to settle into our hearts, to shape us in joy, to bring us further into worship and into trust. We pray this in your name. Amen.